So, uh, Albert Einstein was professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And every year, he would set his students an exam, like an end-of-year test. And one particular year, he wrote the exam for his students, and he gave it over to his assistant to have a look through. And uh, his assistant took it away and read through it, and then he came back to Einstein a while later, a bit confused, and he said, Professor, there's been a terrible mistake. Right? You've, this exam that you've written, this test, it's exactly the same as the one you set last year. And Einstein didn't flinch. He just said, yes, yes, it's the same. And so the assistant said to him, a bit confused, well, why would you do that? Why would you give them all the same questions again? And Einstein said, because the answers have changed, which shouldn't happen in physics, but there we go. I wonder if, um, if you'd been one of those students, how you would have felt getting that exam paper put in front of you again. Um, maybe like something had gone wrong, maybe you'd be quite happy and feel like there were some easy marks to be had because you've already answered all these questions before. And maybe you'd then be particularly frustrated when you got your grade back to discover that things don't work the same this year as they did last year. That uh, although you had all the same questions, that the answers have changed. Maybe it's a little bit like this with God sometimes. I wonder if it ever feels like you're asking all the same questions, uh, but the answers keep changing, like it feels like a bit of a moving target. Maybe sometimes you pray and you fast and you do the things that you're supposed to do, and God answers that prayer, and he moves powerfully, and you see incredible things happen. And then maybe the next day or the next week or... Ten years later, you pray again, and you pray just as hard, and you fast for just as long, and it seems like he's not listening this time. And you're asking all the same questions, but the answers have changed. We've been looking over the last few weeks at all our new church values. Tonight is connecting with God. And this is sort of a, a tension that's just part of being human, I think. We have to wrestle with God. We have to learn how we can relate to a God that is humbly became like us on the one hand, but then at the same time, in so many ways, transcends us. And this is not a new thing, right? The psalmists felt this tension. You can read over and over again. You see, like, how long will you ignore us? How long will you let our enemies triumph over us? Oh, my, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? There's a particular example in Psalm 44, which is going to appear behind me. And uh, Israel had suffered some like military defeats. And they say this in Psalm 44. I'm just going to read it. It will turn up there at some point. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals 
and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So they felt like they were doing all the right things. They hadn't turned their back on God. They hadn't been false to the covenant. They were following all the instructions, doing all the stuff that they were meant to do, but they weren't getting the answers they were used to. And maybe you could forgive the Israelites for feeling like the rules had changed a little bit. I wonder if you can just imagine for a moment and remember and just think of a time when you felt particularly connected to God, particularly close to God. Maybe it was a particular moment, maybe it was a whole season or period of your life where you just felt so near to him, so connected to him. Just call it to mind. Imagine what it felt like. Where were you? What was going on? And then I I wonder if you can think of a time when you felt especially distant from God. Maybe you felt disconnected, separated from God. How was that different? How did it feel? What was going on? How did you get to that point of feeling apart from him? If we can sort of picture these two experiences that you've just thought of at either end of a line, so you're connected on the one hand, this hand, and you're sort of disconnected and separated from God on the other hand, and there's this whole space in between, and I just wonder where you think you might place yourself on that line this evening. (laughs) Or how about yesterday? Or this time last year? Or where, honestly, do you think you might be able to place yourself this time tomorrow? I think if I tried to plot my life along that line, it would vary quite wildly from side to side. But the problem there is not that we go from one side to the other, not that we move along that scale but that we think of it as a scale at all. And maybe we need to reframe how we imagine we connect to God. We're not designed to have these highlights, these moments of connection where we feel like we meet with him powerfully and then we go back to our normal lives. We're not designed for moments of connection, but for a persistent abiding. Connection is really important. And we're social animals. Isolation can be really damaging. And I speak as someone generally quite happy in his own company. But even I sort of have my limits, like a tipping point where I feel like I need to be around people. And I need some eye contact or a laugh or just somebody's attention for a few minutes. I'm getting married soon. It's like, thank you, yes, (laughs) okay. I think we're down to like seven weeks or so. Um, So we're counting down. Um, It's kind of amazing to me to think that uh, 
my fiance, Joya, she sat right there. I don't think this is too embarrassing for her. We speak not just, um, not just every day, but most days we speak like several times throughout the day. And that's remarkable. I mean, I struggle to remember to call my parents more than like once a month. So the fact that we're talking constantly all the time throughout the day, that signifies our connection, right? It signifies that our lives are sort of becoming more and more intertwined with each other's, that we're becoming more and more connected to each other. And that connection encourages me and inspires me and motivates me. Sometimes it reassures me, gives me a sense of purpose. So how much more so, then, should my connection of God be on my mind? And is it the same? Am I thinking about it in the same way? Am I longing for some attention? For a conversation? Is it a, an itch that I need to scratch if I go a morning without hearing from him? There's a guy called uh, Corey Asprey who recently got a lot of notoriety for writing a song about the reckless love of God. But he was quoted as saying this, I want to reach for God the way I reach for my phone. When I'm bored, when I'm uncomfortable, when I need answers or entertainment, when I'm lonely, need someone to talk to. We're going to look at our reading from Luke in a little more detail in a bit. But for the moment, I'll just say that that is a story where we see a great example of someone who was desperate to be with Jesus, to the point of overcoming some serious obstacles. Because we were not made for just moments of connection, but for a persistent abiding. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14... Jesus uh, promises his disciples that after he's gone, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to teach them, encourage them, guide them. Uh, And he says this incredible thing. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So the idea, the design, is not that we're sort of occasionally crossing paths with God when we remember to check in. But our lives are supposed to become intertwined. God has always been desperate to connect with us, to live with us. In the beginning, it was in a garden. And then it was a promised land. And there were tabernacles and feasts and prophets and arcs and temples and a whole sacrificial system. Time after time, God providing means and ways that heaven and earth could come together. And ultimately, providing Jesus. The perfect, permanent act of grace that simply by putting our trust in Jesus, believing he is who he says he is, we can be forever connected with God. A connection that cannot be broken. This is why Paul wrote in Romans, and you all know it, you can sing along, it's going to come up there. Romans 8, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and we'll pause there, because I didn't notice this when I was writing this. But what Paul is about to do is quote from a psalm. And I guess there was like a one in 150 chance but maybe it was God just lining things up, that he happens to quote from that very same psalm that we read from at the beginning, where I was trying to make the point about how frustrating it can be to try and understand God and to try and connect with him. Paul uses that same psalm now to say, nothing can keep us away from him. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, the church, are the place where heaven and earth come together. It was always God's plan that we would be close to him, he would be close to us. Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden. Abraham ate with God by the oaks of Mamre. Jacob physically wrestled with God through the night. Moses spoke face to face with God as one would speak to a friend. The biblical ideal is us and God walking together, breaking bread together, talking together as friends. And in the person of Jesus, all of this happens again. God bridges the gap to make all of that a practical reality for all of us. Love God, and he will come and make his home with you. And as we worship together, like our songs are just one way that we can express that love. I want to focus a little bit on that indwelling of God that we read about from John. He will come and make his home with us. I think connecting with God feels a lot easier and a lot more natural if we can remember that we are connected to God. He is not far off. We're not meant to be grasping or striving for something distant. The passage said he will come and make his home with us. We're living together. We're sharing a house. Living with somebody isn't always as easy as being on your own. It takes communication, understanding, compromise, maybe even sacrifice. I used to live with my brother, Uh, He's a professional brewer, Um, so we had like a 50-litre brewery set up in our kitchen. So I would sort of regularly come home to this powerful stench of wet hops. He also is not a tidy person, and he won't mind me telling you that, but I'd be sort of hunting for kitchen counter space amidst like empty food containers and dirty plates and whatever else. That was the sacrifice, right? That was my compromise. That meant I got to grow in my relationship with my brother. I got to grow in my love 
for him. That was the cost of living in close proximity with him. And there'll be challenges, I'm sure, when Joya and I start to live together. But there'll be so much more joy and fruit in our relationship because of that closeness. And when we're living with God, he, thankfully, can bear our messiness and our bad habits and our dirty plates. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing that God decides to relate to us in this way. And maybe it is frustrating sometimes that it feels like the rules are changing or that the answers are not the same. But it also means that we get a relationship rather than like an equation or a formula. It means we get a God who is relatable and personable, not mechanical. God doesn't want our sacrifices and our songs and our prayers. He wants our hearts and our true worship. Our prayers that are really in his name will be the overflow of a heart that belongs to him. So are we desperate for him? Are we aching for a deeper connection that doesn't come and go? That isn't highlights, but there's a whole way of life. Of course, there's great mystery in the way that God works sometimes, but what if each of those prayerful conversations we had with him was an opportunity not to get frustrated that we don't understand how it works, but instead to try and learn something new about God, to try and practice recognizing his voice, even if he's saying something that we haven't heard before. So we're eventually getting to our Luke Five passage. This is a famous story, right? This is well known. Men bring their friend who is paralyzed to Jesus. They get to the house and they can't get in because it's full. So they sort of apply some creative thinking and they take him upstairs, tear the roof off, and lower him in. So I've got just a couple of questions and reflections. didn't know what to do then that was sorry first question who's carrying you and the second is like it who are you carrying and then finally what are you expecting so number one who's carrying you and we'll lump it together with number two who are you carrying the paralyzed man couldn't do it on his own he couldn't get there by himself he needed his friends to bring him, he needed their support, he needed their determination. And then in verse 20 of the passage, we're told that Jesus saw their faith and said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus is not responding to the paralyzed man in front of us, in front of him. He's responding to the group. He's acting on their faith. So who can you identify? It's the people in your life that are going to tear the roof tiles off for you. That are going to carry you for miles. Can we be a church that's known for that? 
that's known as disciples of Jesus because of how we love each other? Who are the people that are going to build you up in your faith, bring you before Jesus? And don't put any limitations on who could do that. One of my best friends growing up was called Fred. I know that sounds like a pretend name that you give somebody in a story, but he really was called Fred. Um, And he won't mind me telling you that he was and is an atheist and a humanist. Uh, And he's now a a clinical psychologist and an all-round clever guy. And we used to spend hours and hours as teenagers talking about God and the Bible. And I think Fred has probably discipled me more than any other person I can think of because he forced me to work out what I believe. He forced me to at least try and come up with answers to questions that I probably never would have thought of if he hadn't been asking them. And doesn't it sound like God that he would use a humanist atheist to inspire my faith, to force me to make it my own and draw closer to him? So can we look out for each other's connection with God and be ready to find him working through some unlikely places and people? And finally, what are you expecting? The reading doesn't explicitly tell us, but I imagine these men were bringing their friend to Jesus because they wanted him to be able to walk again. Our expectations are even sort of set up that we read in verse 17, the power of God was with Jesus to heal the sick. And every time somebody talks about prayer for healing, I just immediately sort of assume they mean physical healing, that they're talking about alleviating pain and making illnesses well. And that's all, you know, that happens, and that's all amazing. But what happens in the story, the man is lowered through the roof into the midst before Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, get up and walk. That comes a bit later and for a different reason. But what he says to him is, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus might have something to say to you that goes far deeper than what you came to him to hear. Be ready for him to cut to the heart of the matter, to the core of you. And Don't be surprised if he does something you're not expecting. So as we gather on Sundays, let's worship together, carrying each other when we need to. And let's take this time we've set aside to recommit our hearts to God, to dedicate our whole lives to him, ready for him to do the unexpected. And knowing that, as we do, he will come and make his home with us. And that as we leave this place, we have in us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. I'm going to read a prayer. And then we're going to listen to a song for a few minutes. And I just encourage you to take this time to meditate on the nearness of God. Remind yourself that his spirit lives in you. And to ask him 
maybe, that he would disturb you into a greater longing for his presence. Let's pray. And most high, glorious God, how great is my dilemma. In your awful presence, silence seems best. And yet, if I keep my peace, the rocks themselves will cry out. But if I do speak, what will I say? It is love that calls forth my speech, though it still feels like stammering. I love you, Lord God. I adore you. I worship you. I bow down before you. Thank you for your gifts of grace, the consistency of sunrise and sunset, the wonder of colors, the solace of voices I know. I magnify you, Lord. Let me see your greatness to the extent that I can receive it. Help me bow down in your presence in endless wonder and ceaseless praise. In the name of him whose adoration never failed. Amen.